All right, everybody, welcome to Remnant. How are we doing? Woo! My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. It's good to be in God's house this morning. If you're new, I'd love to meet you. We are in a series um, that's called Bible 101, and it really is about learning how to read the Bible. And that's kind of a weird thing. And we're in week 10. Um, and we've been learning that there's ways of digging in God's Word for God's truth. And we're going to talk about that a bit more today. Um, if this is your first week, it's okay. Uh, we will certainly uh, help you understand uh, what we're talking about. And, and I'm just excited that we're all here and that God's Word is open and our hearts are open and we're ready to learn. The year was 1967. I was a naive six-year-old riding in the back seat of our town and country station wagon, had the wood grain trim, the eight track in the deck. It was a day like any other, but it was a day when my life would dramatically change. It's funny how those moments in your life occur. You don't see them coming, but you never forget them once they happen. And once they happen, things are never the same. We'd just gone to a nursery to pick up a poinsettia. It was Christmas time. Everything was wonderful. My mom was driving. I remember it as an incredible day. She pulled out to cross Illinois Street just west of Hampton. I still remember the intersection in Dallas. This was a place where my innocent world changed. It happened in a split second. I, I, I remember mom was looking out the passenger window. She had her arm over the middle seat and she's looking for cars that are coming. And in a split second, my life would never be the same. I was broadsided when my mother turned to me and said, Frank, you know there really isn't a Santa Claus, right? I never saw that collision coming. No warning honk, no screeching brakes, no screeching tires, no seatbelt, no airbag. In a split second, my world of innocent trust and belief collided with deception and lies. I still remember it. I would never again be the same. And I'm not joking. I remember, I would, from that moment on, I would be a lifelong skeptic. I remember my first thought, it had nothing to do with Santa Claus. It actually had to do with Jesus. I was stunned. My parents had lied to me. I remember sitting in the back of that car, probably before we cleared the intersection. And I remember specifically thinking, my parents lied to me. I was deeply scarred. I went into a tailspin. How could my parents have lied to me? Why did my parents lie to me? I felt so foolish and so ignorant. My older brother, of course, reminded me of how stupid I was to believe in the first place. He also suggested that I was probably adopted because he didn't remember mommy having a baby in her belly. <laughs> my parents had lied to me. And within minutes, I began wondering, what else did they lie about? What about Jesus? Is Jesus real? I think that on that day, I decided that if I could not trust my parents, I was going to need proof in everything that I believed. I hated the feeling of being deceived. I still hate that feeling today. That's why I don't really get involved in the political scheming on either side. We're being deceived from all over. I can't stand it. I wish somebody had warned me, though, that the Santa Claus bomb was coming. I could have prepared myself. I was completely unprepared. I believed so hard, and I wanted so badly for it to be true. Looking back, I missed all the obvious signs. Have you ever been deceived, and then you look back later, and you wonder why you didn't see that when it was happening? The signs were everywhere. The reason I believe is I think we want something to be true. We really want it to be true. And then we get blinded by our desire and we actually ignore the very truth that's in front of us. That's where Paul's going to take us in the book of Colossians. People are going to come, he says. They're going to try to entice your desires. They're going to try to get you to forget what you know and focus on what you want. They're going to ask you to trust them to show you a new truth, a better truth, a new enlightenment. And it's going to play to your ego. And Paul says, I don't know you, I've never met you, but I have to write and warn you. You have to stay laser focused on what you know to be true about Jesus. 
Because false teaching is about to assault your desires. He told Timothy this, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they'll turn away from listening to the truth and they'll wander off into myths. False teachers appeal to our passions. We want what they say to be true. If they can't get you focused on what you want instead of what's true, then they'll fail. They want to get you so focused on what you want that you'll believe anything they say. Jesus said it this way. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. No one had warned me about the deceptive practices of my parents. I took it full force. But we can't use that excuse when it comes to God. The entire New Testament is a warning about chasing your desires instead of God's truth. Before we dive in, though, I want to go through just a few more key points when we think about how to interpret Scripture. These are things that just I've talked about, but I haven't really listed them for you. I'd like you to just think about them as we begin to move from what do we see to what does it mean. These are basic principles for Bible interpretation. They Last week, we started talking about what did it mean to the first audience, about the historical, political, economic, moral, geographic, all those contexts. I want to add a little bit to that by giving you just a couple of key rules. The first one, before we start, is we have to understand what the purpose of studying the Bible is all about anyway. The goal of Bible interpretation is to find the meaning, the truth, that God has already placed in the text for us to discover. These words have been studied for over 2,000 years. Believers like you and me have sat down and said, God, show me what's in here. Show me your truth. God's truth never changes. God never changes. What's true to the original audience is true to us. We're dusting off the original to discover what the truth is. We're not chiseling it to make it what we want it to be. In other words, the purpose of Bible study is to ask the Holy Spirit to show you the truth that God's already put in the text. Not to add anything to it, but to discover what's already there. God, what did you want to say to them? Where is the truth in this text? And then what do you want to say to me? Remember that the text can never say what it never said. In other words, there's nothing that's true today in the text for us that wasn't true for them as well. If it's an eternal truth, it's true throughout. We may understand it better. We may have more of an understanding, but the truth doesn't change. So let me run through a few tips to help us do this. The first one we've talked about, but I've never actually listed it. Remember that context rules. Never take a scripture out of context to make it say what you want it to say, even if your intentions are good. A lot of times we want to encourage someone or we want somebody to somebody to feel better, so we misinterpret Scripture. We take a Scripture, we pull it out of context, and we tell them a truth that's not true. Remember, the ultimate author of truth is God, and He does not need us to add to His meaning. His truth is true long before we were ever around to have an opinion about it, and will be true long after we're gone. The second thing is always seek the full counsel of the Word of God. What I mean by that is, the more you study the Bible, the more you see threads starting to connect from all different passages throughout the entire text, beginning to end. Pay attention to that. Remember that this is part of a story, and it's God's story from beginning to end. So when you read Scripture, you should always be thinking about what else does this represent? Where else have I heard about a vine dresser? Where else have I heard about a vine? Where have I heard about this second? All those kind of things play together. Third, remember that Scripture never contradicts Scripture. Truth never contradicts truth. And as a result, we compare scriptures. We're going to learn later what all those little things mean in the text that have a, like an A and a B and a C and how you have to read scripture by looking at other scriptures to help you understand it. God can't be wrong. If we think scripture contradicts scripture, the problem is with our understanding, not with his truth. Fourth, the 
best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture. When you read something you don't understand, it is extremely rare for you to not find the explanation within other Scriptures. You almost never have to go outside the book of God to understand the truth of God. It can help to hear what other people say. It can help to hear those things. But the reality is that truth is true. God wants to show it to you, but he wants to show it to you in the context of other scriptures. Last thing I just want to remind you of is avoid basing your doctrine on some obscure passage in scripture. There are some texts that we come to and they just don't add up. They seem to not make sense and we can't really figure it out. And I find encouragement that Peter even said that Paul's writings are hard to understand. I love that. But we have to get comfortable with the fact that we're human. We have human minds. God is infinite. We're finite. God's word is going to be puzzling to us at times, not because it's wrong, but because we're not where we need to be yet, either spiritually or mentally, to understand all that God wants to reveal in his word. Here's where you can find confidence. The things that God wanted to make clear, he made crystal clear. And he repeated them over and over and over. Those things, God wants to make us clear that we understand what they are. So we're ready to dig into the text. Remember that we're looking for the truth that's already there. We have our Bible, we have our notes, we have our bookmark maybe. If you didn't get one, they're out in the lobby, I think. Um, but before you ever open that book, you have to invite the Holy Spirit into this discussion. I always pray a very similar prayer every time I open the Bible to study it. So let's bow for a minute and pray. God, I know that my mind already wants to argue and disagree with the truth that you've put in this text. In the battle of my mind, I know that I want to resist it. There's still a part of me, some of my thoughts that want to do what I want to do. The areas of the Bible where you have me, the truth I need to embrace are those areas where I've not yet surrendered and matured. I know that the lessons that you have for me are those where I need to change something I'm doing. Areas where I need to submit, surrender, and grow. As a result, God, these are areas of my life where so far I've resisted your truth and haven't fully applied it. Please help my mind to submit to your spirit. Help me, God, to remember that I have an audience of one to not care what others think and to only be concerned about you and your truth. While my mind resists, I know my heart desperately wants to pursue you, to discover you, to experience you. It's in the midst of your word that I hear you speak the most clearly. God, I want to meet you in the text. I want to experience you as I read the words. Hold my hand and walk me through your truth. Help me to obey even in areas that I don't agree or don't understand. I'll surrender and obey your truth no matter what you reveal to me, even if I don't like it, even if I don't agree with it. It is your truth. I will do anything, anytime, anywhere, no matter what you require of me. God, show me the truth that's in your words today. Give me the humility to agree with you, courage to trust you, power to surrender to you, and a heart to worship you. I'm so thankful that I get to meet with you every day. So blessed to have these holy words to guide my life. God, help me to set aside everything else going on in this world and focus on this moment. I enter into your presence through the blood of Jesus, a sinful man covered in his righteousness, soaking in his love and being transformed into his likeness. Please, God, don't let me read these words and stay the way I am. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's time to see what we see. We're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 through 16. It is in front of you on a piece of paper, I hope, as well as your scriptures. Uh, you probably can't read that. Um, maybe you can, I don't know. The point is, it's in front of you, and I did this slide so those online would get it and be able to see. This is our passage, and remember I said the first thing we do when we get a new passage is we read it seven times. I'm not going to make us read it seven times, but I am going to read the whole passage to you so we can begin to get a sense of what we're going to talk about today. 
Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. How do you feel after you read that passage? What emotions are you experiencing? Power? What else? What's this passage about? If I say, okay, we just read it, what's your first impression of what this passage is about? Okay, not to be deceived, to walk in his truth. This is a passage that continues what we studied last time, which is clearly identifying the deity of Jesus, right? I mean, this talks about what he's done, where he's been, all those sorts of things. Okay, now the next thing I want us to look at, Kevin, go to the next slide. Things that repeat. Okay, remember we talked about words that repeat, tell us what the writer thought was the most important. I'm going to go through this quickly because you have it in front of you. I do want you to go home and study this again. Um, but let me just bring up the things that repeat. Why don't you pull those up? Next slide. Okay, one thing that we see is throughout the text, in him repeats over and over and over. This text is about what happens in Christ. Okay? In him, in him, in him, in him. The next slide we see with him repeated. What is this passage about? Him, right? Over and over, in him, in him, in him, with him, with him, with him. When you see what repeats, you begin to understand what this passage is about. Something else repeats as well. Next slide. Circumcision. That's odd, but it repeats. It must be important. There's something about circumcision that we need to learn that has to do with in him and with him. So we have our repeats. Let's go to the next one. Transitions. Remember I said every time you see a transition, pay attention to it. In this passage, there are a few transitions. Therefore, the very first word. That's to tie you to the text that happened before. When you see the word for, it's the same as therefore. So the first two parts of this are as a result of or therefore, and then there's a transition that says and you. Okay, so there, this text is about things that have happened and how it applies to us. Next thing we're going to look for are metaphors. I love metaphors. Metaphors are what we preach on. Metaphors are an image, a picture in your mind that you can meditate on that brings deeper meaning to the text. In this text, there are several metaphors. First one is, he says, as you received, so walk. And I'll get into that in a minute. As you received him, walk in him. The next thing that we're to image is no one takes you captive. That image of being taken captive, what does that mean? You're going somewhere against your will. You're being held. You can't get out. Something's happening to you. You've lost control. All those emotions, all those things tie to what that passage means. The next one is this idea of being circumcised without hands. Being buried with Jesus, raised through faith, alive with him. Those are all images. They're they're metaphors that we can meditate on and begin to understand what God wants us to see in the text. Let's go to the next one. Are there any commands in this text? Never want to miss a command, right? If God's telling you to do something, we want to make sure we see it. Let's look at the command that's in this text. See to it. That's a command. You see to it. We'll talk about that in a minute. Let's keep going. Next. Lists. 
Gotta love lists, right? Let's look at what's listed in this scripture. The first is I'm to walk in him in four ways. Rooted, built up, established, and abounding in thanksgiving. Those are the four ways I'm to walk in him. Let's go to the next list. I'm not to be held captive by these four things and a warning on the fifth. I should not be held captive by philosophy, empty deceit, human tradition, elemental spirits, and not according to Christ. That's a list. They're in order for a reason. Next list. In him. In him, whole fullness of deity dwells. I've been filled, past tense. I was circumcised of Christ, buried in baptism, raised through faith in God, all in him. Next one. But God. Okay, here's a list of what God has done. God has made me alive with him, having forgiven my sins, canceled the record of debt, canceled legal demands and punishment, nailed the sentence to the cross, disarmed the rulers, shamed the rulers, triumphed over them. That's what God has done. Let me show you one that's not up here. There is a list of one in this scripture. Um, And I always say lists of ones aren't really lists, but here it's important. See where it says, and you? And you. There's only one thing this scripture says about you and me. You're dead. That's it. You're dead. Here's what Jesus does. Here's who Jesus is. Here's what God does. Oh yeah, your list, just know you're dead. Because what's going to happen in your life is not you. It's God. He's going to do those things. You just keep remembering you're dead. And then we move on to context. How does this passage fit in the text? Paul is going to remind those at Colossae who Jesus really is who they are, and what that means in the way they should live. So let's dive in. Colossians 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith, as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Paul reminds them and he tells us, he says, you remember back when you first surrendered to Jesus? Do you remember that moment? Do you remember when you first remember, first understood that Jesus was your Savior? Do you remember that? How you were broken and unworthy and surrendered and obedient and excited and you were trusting Him because you couldn't trust yourself anymore? Do you remember how thankful you were that Jesus had not given up on you? Do you remember those emotions? Do you remember how you gave in to the faith that you had and you discovered it was enough? Do you remember those early moments of surrender to Jesus? Do you remember what that was like, he says? Just like that. As you received, so you should walk. Your life, your everyday actions, all that you should do, it should be done just like that. You should remember that you're unworthy and you're broken and you're surrendered and you're thankful and you're obedient and God loves you no matter what you did and you're loved by Him. Just like you remember when you were received by Him, also you should walk like that. John said it this way, whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we're in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. How did Jesus walk? Well, he was humble. He was truthful. He was loving, caring, passionate, compassionate, sacrificial. The same way we came to Jesus is the way we should walk in him. Paul says, remember that. Don't forget how you came. Don't forget how you're to walk. Paul says, You're in a relationship with Christ. Walk in it. Walk in Him. Spending time with Jesus, you become rooted, he says. You become established. You become more mature. You you develop roots. And then you eventually overflow with thanksgiving. See, that's our list we talked about. Does that describe the way you walk with Jesus today? 
You're deeply rooted. You're nurtured by him. You're abiding in him. He's filling you up and he fills you up so much that you're maturing and growing. And then your fruit pours out and there's so much in it, you can't stand it. So you just thank God for the way he's changed your life. Paul says that's how Christians should be walking in him. Paul tells you and me from the beginning, this is the goal. You're in a relationship with your creator. He gifted you. He created you. He loves you. He has great plans for you. He specifically put you on this earth, in this time, in this moment for a purpose. He's thrilled with you. He sees you and loves you. He, he lives in your potential, not in your present. He sings over you. He dotes over you. He's watching over you. He loves you more than you love yourself. You and I are exactly who he created us to be. Yes, we've sinned. Yes, our relationship with him needs to be restored. But Paul is talking to those who are on the other side of restoration. He's talking to you and me. He reminds us that when we received Christ, we were rooted in him. We were established in him. And then he says without saying, then why don't you live like it? Why are we imprisoned by the spoken and unspoken expectations of others if God has already said who we are? Why are we not living in the freedom that we had when we first came to Christ? Too many believers fail to live in the joy and peace and promise of their life in Christ that He died to give them. And the reason is very simple. They have not spent enough time in relationship with Jesus to know who He really is. They haven't rooted themselves in Him. If you're still listening to the opinions and expectations of others, if that's still driving your decision-making, you haven't rooted yourself deep enough in your relationship with Jesus. You and I, as followers of Jesus, have a relationship of one. We're supposed to be seeking the approval of only one. We accept the truth of one and we have an audience of one. We don't hear the critical condemning voice of others because we're tuned into the voice of our Savior. We spent so much time abiding and surrendered to Him that, that we're not listening to the world. It's only in that reality that we truly experience the freedom Jesus wanted to have. Many of us identify with the death of Jesus on the cross. We picture him going to the cross. We picture his suffering. We picture the blood being poured out. We hear him saying, Father, it's finished. We hear him say, receive my spirit. We identify with the cross and then we don't walk out of the tomb. We, we share the experience of crucifixion and punishment. Yeah, I deserve to be punished. Yes, I'm horrible. But then we fail to share with him the resurrection and the new life. For many of us, we're entombed by the words and expectations of others. Jesus tells you're free. Come on, don't, don't live like you're imprisoned. You're in Christ. And to Satan's great joy, if he can't save you, maybe he can keep you imprisoned. Maybe he can make you ineffective. He might lose you for eternity, but the last thing he wants is for you to actually realize the truth of this passage, that we are to live in him. What does that look like? Walk in Him. Well, we have a list, a metaphor, something to think about. Rooted. We have to know where and why we're planted. We have to know where our nourishment comes from, where our life comes from. If we're going to survive the dry, hard times of life, our roots have to be deep and not just deep. They got to be deep in Him. You see, deep roots don't grow a tree. Deep roots that connect to water grow a tree. Too many of us are developing deep roots in what we believe that's not true in Scripture, and then we wonder why we're a dry tap. We have to tap into the Holy Spirit with our roots. Second is, we're built up. Once we make that connection, we begin to grow. Once we truly connect to him, he begins to change us. We begin to develop the fruit of the spirit, his fruit. We don't decide to do it. 
He does it through us. As we abide, as we connect, He grows us and we produce love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, forbearance, and self-control. It just happens. It's the kind of tree we are because we're connected to the roots. And then He says, you'll be established in the faith. When we grow, when we abide, we become established. We're not here one minute and gone the next. We're not the kind of believers who flare up at the beginning and then phase out. We're here for the long haul, the good, the bad, the difficult, the challenging. We're here for all of it. And note, this is something that happens to us when we are taught. The Holy Spirit teaches us and establishes us in that truth in the faith. You can't be established in the faith. You can't be mature without solid biblical teaching. We have to be taught. And then the fourth thing is the result of those other three. Thanksgiving. When you know you're rooted in Him, when you can feel His life flowing through you, when you see the joy and the love and the peace of God flowing through you to other people, when you know that you're there and you're not moving and you're going to be that way forever, all you can do is say, thank God. This is the result of the first three. Thankfulness will abound in you. So Paul reminds us, we got to walk in the same manner that we first came to Jesus. Our walk should always reflect the surrender of those very first steps we took. Rooted, built, established, thankful. Does that describe you today? When you came into this place today, could you say, man, I am rooted. I am thankful. I am filled. And oh my gosh, what he's doing through me and growing me. I can't wait to hear the new text, the new truth that's going to change me. Then Paul tells us, think about all that. Because that, as a result, here's a command for you. I want you to think about all we just talked about. Being rooted. Being right where you need to be. Strong. A plant. Ready to serve God. And then he turns and he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. In other words, know who you are and you make sure nobody else tries to tell you you're something else. According to human tradition, elemental spirits, not according to Christ. See to it. It's a command. Make sure it happens. You have total control of this. You have total control of what you believe. The outcome is actually your responsibility. This is your command, your issue, your next step, Paul says. Attend to this. Don't miss the obvious point here. No one else takes you captive. See to it that no one takes you captive. The only way you can allow yourself to become captive to thoughts, opinions, and expectations of others that don't align with Christ is when you do it to yourself. You choose what you believe. You elevate the opinions over the truth of God. Paul says, see to it, make sure this is your choice. Don't let it happen. The Greek word here that says take you captive carries the idea of being cheated for something that you truly deserve. It literally means to lead you away as prey. You know who you are. You know you're rooted. You know what you've learned. You're growing in faith. You're thankful. Don't you dare let false teachers drag you away like prey. Philosophy, deceit of human tradition, according to elemental spirits, not according to Christ. From the dawn of history, man has pondered the questions of reality, sought an explanation for these universal questions about our existence. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? World philosophies try to answer those questions. The word philosophy comes from two words, phileo, which is love, and sophia, which is wisdom. It's the love of wisdom. Philosophy is the love and pursuit of wisdom. And because we all have a worldview, we all follow a wisdom, we're all philosophers. I take classes online through um, uh, the American Lecture Series, and, and there are philosophers and educated people that teach all kinds of classes. Most of the philosophers we studied and the teachers who taught them either denied the existence of God, have an unbiblical view of Him, And it's frustrating to watch. I'll pull up things on the story of Jesus. 
or the meaning of Jewish tradition in the first century, or all these things. And it's obvious that the person teaching does not have the Holy Spirit, does not believe in Jesus, and honestly probably doesn't believe in God. And yet they're trying to find the ultimate truth of life that's only found in God. Desperately trying to determine ultimate truth apart from God. Francis Schaeffer said this, man cannot begin with himself and arrive at reality. And I think that's true. By eliminating God and his revelation from the picture, modern philosophy has basically plunged man into an abyss of ignorant darkness and despair. And Colossae had its philosophers. That's what Paul was worried about. There are people who are going to come in who worship their wisdom. In 2 Peter, we did a series not too long ago where we studied Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a common teaching in the early church and still very common today. That basically says God is spirit and God is good. Anything created is bad. Therefore, God could not have been Jesus. Uh, that he could never be human and God at the same time because everything created is horrible, everything spiritual is wonderful, and God would never stoop so low. But unlike 2 Peter, 2 Peter was only about Gnosticism. This church in Colossae has this sort of eclectic collection of ideas that are going to hit this church. And Paul realizes it. He hasn't ever met them before, but he's like, look, there's some crazy stuff headed your way. You better know your roots. Philosophy. In this church, there's going to be a mix of Gnosticism, Greek philosophy, humanism, local mystery religions, and Jewish mysticism. That's what's coming. You can see in the writings that Paul starts to challenge the Gnostics right away. Gnostics taught that God is perfect and could not be contact with the material world. So Paul goes out of his way that Jesus is God and he came in bodily form in the flesh. The Gnostics taught that since God could not have direct contact with the world, he did not create the world. He worked through lesser spirits and angels to do it. Paul took care to show that Jesus was the creator of the world. All things were created in him, through him, and by him. Gnosticism and Jewish mysticism taught that God did not deal directly with man, but he dealt through some mediators and that these mediators could bring us closer to God. So Paul tells us, don't worship angels. There's no mediator. It's you and God. Gnosticism and some forms of Jewish mysticism considered angelic beings to be worthy of worship. Paul says angels shouldn't be worshipped. And then there's Jewish mysticism in this church. Remember at this point in history, this is important to realize, the Orthodox Jews, the people that were like the Orthodox Jews, they stayed in the synagogues and rejected the early Christians. Okay? You're not a believer in Judaism. You believe in this false Messiah. You're part of the new way. You're not welcome in the synagogue anymore. Okay? But like every religion, there are people that are sort of on the fringe. And there was a group of people that basically were Jewish mystics. They liked the idea of the Jewish feast. They liked the idea of some of the Jewish traditions. But they wanted to add to that, that following those things and doing those things bring out some magical sort of influence with God. We still see it in some of the messianic churches. Not all of them, but some of them. By following these rituals, we will open up things and God will reveal to us what he otherwise would not have done. So we have this weird group of Jewish mysticists. They want to follow Jewish law. They want to add to it. And they're coming to Colossae. They would emphasize dietary laws. They would emphasize circumcision the observance of particular days and feasts, the work of angels and other beings. And so Paul is looking at this. He's hearing about it from Epaphras when he's in Rome. And he's like, oh my gosh, they have no idea what's on the horizon. So Paul speaks of human traditions handed down from generation to generation. Just because something's handed down and adopted doesn't make it true. Let me repeat that. Just because something's been handed down and adopted doesn't mean it's true. Generations have believed a lot of untrue things over the years and taught them to the children. Santa Claus. Just say it. Going swimming after you eat comes to mind. Swallowing gum takes seven years to digest. That is not true. 
Terrible things always come in threes. If your ears are ringing, someone's talking about you. I'm apparently the topic of conversation 24-7. And it's intense. Paul calls some human traditions philosophy and empty deceit. There are people that really believe these human traditions over the truth of God. And then Paul addresses the religion of what we would call today humanism. The fastest growing cult in the world today, particularly in the U.S., it is the worship of man. It's on every TV show. It's on Discover, IE. If you look at most shows, most things on TV, the news, everything you're being bombarded with, it's humanism. Elevating human wisdom, elevating science, human achievement over all else, and most importantly, ignoring God. We talked about humanism in detail in the Revelation series that we did. You can find that at the uh, Frank Bible Truth podcast. I, I talked the first three sex lessons are about humanism in our world. Greek philosophy worshiped and elevated man. Man could be enlightened. Human wisdom was all one needed. You don't need a supernatural God because you can be your own God. We're going to worship the achievement of man. We're going to worship man's ability to lengthen his own life, to determine his future. Dependence on God is actually a sign of personal weakness and failure. It's the human mind that has all the potential we need. You just have to unlock human wisdom and we'll be able to solve anything. One day we'll allow ourselves to, to live forever. We'll, we'll cure every disease. We will be God. Paul calls this heresy. Wisdom of man. And then there's another teaching that comes from the word stoicia. It's a Greek word and it means the elements of the world, earth, water, air, and fire. Common to Jews and pagans was this idea of cause and effect. Under the idea that we get what we deserve, there's some kind of karma out there and it's a certain amount of it. It gets moved from place to place and those kind of things. And if you're bad, you deserve to receive bad. And Paul told the Colossians, don't believe it. That's not the message that you've learned. And then there's some in Colossae that were including some other religious ideas, mystery religions, element forces, the elements of the world. There's all this weird teaching. You remember in week one, when I said, and we asked the question, why did Paul find it urgent to write to a group of people he's never met? This is why. In this unique church, in this unique place at Laodicea, at Colossae, at Hierapolis, there is some unique teaching being taught. There's a tsunami of false teaching coming to this group of believers. And Epaphras has told him how they love the Lord, how they love Jesus, how they're so well grounded. And Paul's like, okay, we're going to find out because a hurricane's coming. One wave after another of false teaching is about to bombard you. And it may have enough power to rip out your roots if you're not well established. Paul tells those believers in Jesus they're about to be assaulted by a combination of all kinds of heresies, all kinds of fanciful ideologies. Tells us something. We're supposed to be rooted, built up, established, thankful, and mature. We are responsible. We, if we are misled by false teachers, you are responsible if you are misled by false teachers. Paul makes that very clear here. You do not allow it to happen. You see, here's what we think. We think, well, if a false teacher comes in and teaches me something wrong, God's going to punish them, not me. No, he'll punish them. Don't worry about that. But you and I are responsible if we fall under false teaching. We think that the punishment will be on the teacher, but Paul says we have to make sure we're not taken captive. If we end up as captives, it's our fault too. Mature believers who are taken captive by deceptive teachings are not victims. We've just failed to remember what we've been taught. If you're a mature believer, not an infant or child in the faith, you're responsible for what you choose to believe. You're responsible for knowing the truth for yourself. These false teachers sound intelligent. Paul says, don't allow yourself to be a captive by them. Instead, he says, you know how you avoid being deceived? How do you avoid that which is counterfeit? How do you make sure you know the real deal? 
The more time you spend with Christ, the more you understand his heart, the more you're rooted in that relationship, the harder it will be to anyone to fool you. And once again, Paul reminds us about who Jesus is. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Gnostics, he's God and he's human. Deal with it. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Not only is he incredible, you're incredible. Not because you're incredible, because you're filled in him. What he manifests, he has given to you. He's brought into your life. Remember in the first chapter of Colossians, Paul said, I want you to know who Jesus is. You need to know who Jesus is. You remember that? He, he said he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. He's before all things. He created all things. He holds everything together. That's who he is. And then he says, you remember who you were? Alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And then here's who you would become. You'd be able to present yourself holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Paul tells them and us, the key to avoiding false doctrine is to know whose you are and to walk in it. You remember Paul's warning at the end of that incredible passage that we studied for two weeks. He is reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope and the gospel you've heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul reminds us again who the Godhead is. It's Jesus one of the most important passages in scripture because it is one of the strongest passages that in the most definitive statement that Jesus is God. All the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Jesus. He can't be a halfway God. He's not a junior God. He's not a partial God. He is fully God and he's on earth. You've been filled in him. You've become complete in him. The only way you can be completely filled is if he's truly God. The only way you can be complete is if he's actually truly God. Then he continues, in him you were circumcised with a circumcision without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were raised with him through faith and the power working of God, which raised him from the dead. You read that and you're just like, what is he talking about? Uh, Some kind of robotic surgery, I guess. Circumcision without hands. Remember that the Colossian heresy is a mixture of pagan and Jewish legalism. They're going to teach that you need to be circumcised in order to follow Jesus. Every Jewish boy was circumcised on the eighth day after his birth. It was a sign that he belonged to the covenant nation. Circumcision was an outward demonstration that man was born sinful and needs cleansing. The cutting away of the foreskin of a reproductive organ was a graphic way of describing that Man needs to be cleansed at his deepest level of his being. No other part of anatomy demonstrates the depth of our sins. In addition, that's the part of the body that brings forth life. Deuteronomy 10, 15. The Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. That's interesting. Your heart. The New Testament emphasizes circumcision of the heart. Stephen, the first martyr, said this, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Paul said to the Romans, For no one is a Jew who's merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Most of the Colossian Christians are Gentiles. 
The audience that is reading this text have never been circumcised physically. And what Paul wants to tell them is you've been circumcised, but in a new covenant. You've been circumcised, but in a new way. There's a false teaching that says you have to be physically circumcised, but what Paul says is, look, he says, you got the wrong idea here. There's a true circumcision that happens through Christ. You're not physically circumcised, you're spiritually circumcised. And the process is this. You are baptized with Christ into death and risen to walk in newness of life. In other words, what circumcision stood for in the Old Testament, baptism represents under the new covenant. It's not that you're circumcised physically. What brings you into the covenant relationship with God is you're identifying with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That's what baptism represents, walking in newness of life. What Paul is saying is, look, they're both rituals. They both reflect what's gone on in your heart. They both identify you as a covenant child of the living God. But in the New Testament under Christ, circumcision is essentially one done without hands. They show that your adoption as children, it's a spiritual cutting away of the part of your heart that doesn't resonate with God. Paul essentially says this, circumcision's not important. What's important is spiritually cutting away the flesh in your life and in the heart of every believer. If you want a ceremony, mark your spiritual transformation of your life as your baptism, not necessarily physical circumcision. Through faith in the working of God, Paul understands that what happens to us happens through God. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses. By canceling the debt that stood against you with its legal demands, he set aside nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. He put them to shame and he triumphed over them in him. As a result of the fall, man is incomplete. You were dead, he says. You were dead. You want to know your condition? Dead. You want to know what you could do on your own? Dead. You want to know the value and purpose of your human life? You're dead. People who don't know Jesus are not sick and need a doctor. They're dead and they need a savior. Let me repeat that. The people we know who don't know Jesus are not just sick and need a doctor. They're dead and they need a savior. You and me and every person at Colossians at one point in our life is dead in our sins. We're dead. We can't make ourselves alive, but God can make us alive together with Jesus. We can never be made alive spiritually apart from Jesus. And now in chapter 2, after warning them of all the false teaching, Paul picks up where he left off and he gives us two lists to look at. The first list is what's happened to us. Well, we were filled with him, we're circumcised with him, we're baptized with him, we're made alive with him, we're forgiven with him, our debts are canceled with him, and we're made alive together with him. And then Paul gives us another list to compare. Here's what Jesus did for us. He took our sins. He allowed them to be nailed to the cross with him. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. He put them to shame and he triumphed over them. That's who we are. This is what happened to us. This is what Jesus did. By the way, remember, there's no list of what you did to make that happen. Remember, you're just dead. Jesus took the ordinances of everybody all the sins you've done, all the written requirements, all the legal documents that say you should be punished and die, and he nailed them on the cross. Do you remember the sign that was above Jesus on the cross? See, it was common when you crucified somebody to put their sin or their, what happened to them, you know, murder or adult or whatever, on the cross so everybody walking by would know what was wrong. His was king of the Jews. The Jewish leader said, well, can we just put that he wants to be king of the Jews? Pilate says, no, no, we're going to put king of the Jews up there. I love that. And he, so his title is king of the Jews. And what Paul's saying is, oh, by the way, your sins were up there with him too. If you'd flip the page behind king of the Jews, you would have seen your sins. They were nailed to the cross with him. 
the greatest power on earth at that time, the Roman Empire, the governmental powers, Judaism, the greatest religious power, conspired together to kill the Son of God on a cross. They stripped him naked. They held him to public contempt. They celebrated and triumphed over him. And here, Paul shows us the paradox of the cross. Jesus stripped down the earthly powers. He stripped them. He held them to contempt, and then he publicly triumphed over them. Paul would write to the Corinthians and say this, None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. In other words, Jesus took what was a defeat and made it so triumphant that they were defeating themselves and they didn't even know it. Also notice he does something else here, and we're almost done. He disarms. Note that. What weapons do demonic spirits have? Well, they're disarmed. All they can do is deceive and bring fear. They have no weapons at all anymore. Christ has disarmed them. They only have power in our lives when we allow them to have that influence. The weapons are in our hands, not theirs. We have the Word of God. Remember, the Word of God is the truth. It's the sword. They don't have any weapons except fear and manipulation. And we're going to see one day that they're actually very afraid of us. It's going to be incredible. So Paul is here once again reminding us of what we're supposed to know is true, warning us about our desires that can lead us away. Next week, we're going to unpack the second reason why some of us will be willing to believe anything. The first we talked about today, we have desires that we wish were true. And part of us have a desire to be God and to do things our way. Next week, we're going to talk about something that may be even more powerful. And that is, we have a desire to be accepted by other people. We're too concerned about what other people think of us. And as a result, we don't really care about what God thinks about us. Or if we do, we don't live like it. Now, I can't really blame my parents for the whole Santa Claus thing. I know that. It was a deceptive plot. Apparently the whole world was in on it. Who knew? Turns out the deception was broader than I first realized. Tooth Fairy, Easter Bunny. Do you know that Wonder Bread doesn't make you grow eight ways? Popeye's spinach does nothing after all the spinach I ate. And then the worst deception of all was Superman. But I know there's one thing that will never let me down. One thing that I can place all my faith in without hesitation or without reservation. The more I know God's word, the more I experience him in the text, the more I abide in him, the harder it will be for somebody to deceive me. I'm not arrogant enough to say I can't be deceived, but I don't think it would happen easily. You see, I want to become an expert witness in the word of God. I want to devote my life to knowing it inside and out. I want to help others wake up from their deception and discover the only truth in the world because everything else you've learned and thought could be wrong. My parents lied to me. They straight out lied. They had excuses and reasons, but it didn't change what they did. But let me tell you one thing. They never once lied to me about Jesus. I lied to me about Jesus but they never did. We're bombarded with false teaching about Jesus. In fact, it's hard to find true teaching even in the churches. You're responsible for what you believe about Jesus. Deception's everywhere, but you and only you can allow yourself to be carried away and taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. You must know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you had Paul go to such great detail to remind us of who you are and who we are and how we should walk rooted, growing, thankful, stable, enduring. God, I thank you for this passage because it's so easy to blow through, but the reality is because of what Jesus did on the cross, we share with him in that experience and we share with him in newness of life. I pray for every person here, God, that we would recommit to spending time alone with you, that we would understand 
in a deeper way what you have for us, that we'd begin to learn how to read the scriptures for ourselves, how to see what you have for us and how to apply it. God, I thank you for Paul. I thank you for the people at Colossae. Thank you for these ancient words that are handed down to us. Most of all, God, I thank you for Jesus, for who he is and for what he does for us. We ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. 